Well, what a joy to be with you again to uh, be able to bring you the Lord's Word. It is, a, it is a really great privilege to have this opportunity to study for your sake. Um, I'm studying for mine. To, to go through the Word like this, especially as you'll see with the passage that we're dealing with this morning, is just crucial uh, to, to prepare in the Word, not for anyone else first, but to honor the Lord and to have His thoughts. But there is the overflow of that, and that is comes with the task of preaching, and so it is my delight to be able to bring you God's Word. Uh, we talked about how Joe was, is off with, uh, and it's funny that Abner so ironically would say, with a bunch of nerds talking theology and Bible, because this is what we love to do. And so I, I went to a different kind of nerdy conference a couple of years ago with a, a fellow student of mine, uh, and he's from Uganda. And uh, this particular conference was in Pasadena at a seminary there that you might know. And uh, it, was a, it was a missiology conference. So missiology is studying the science of missions with the goal of planting churches around the world and uh, whatever that might involve. So we go to this missiology conference and excited about the lineup because I've got an African friend with me and I've been studying on uh, uh, missions in Africa. Our focus was to go to any type of African session we could find. And we found a Kenyan scholar and she was presenting on church planting in Kenya. So this was kind of an exciting opportunity. Opportunity, uh, and we were fascinated by the topic. Uh, what does it take to make disciples in Kenya? And so she uh, started quickly talking about all of her view of disciple making, and it involved, I just wrote some things down here, teaching young people to use computers, applying for jobs, getting involved in local politics, literacy. What I didn't hear was anything about biblical literacy in making disciples in Kenyan churches. What I didn't hear for those 35 minutes was anything about repentance from sin as a baseline starting block for making disciples and for raising up a church. Uh, When it came time for questions at the end, my Ugandan friend, I was so glad he was the one asking it, uh, he shoots his hand in the air, and he says this one question, and it, the kind of simple question we might ask in church, but you don't ask in an academic environment. How do you define the gospel? He asked her that. You, you could just hear everybody's heads kind of squeak as they turn to shoot a glare into us to try and burn us where we sat. And it was, it was incredible. So she, she smiled. She stuttered a little bit of an answer, but she proceeded to say that the gospel is, and I wrote this down too, the grassroots effort of the church to affect the infrastructures of society, culture, politics, to create a stable economy that would provide young people with an education, lead to jobs and welfare, to health care for the poor. And it occurred to us in that moment, well, on the one hand, we had no idea what she was talking about. Just, just like 35 of the most wasted minutes trying to figure out how to church plant in Kenya. But it was actually really sad because it seemed that without that focus on repentance from sin, this scholar who's informing us about how to do the work of Christ in the world, I don't feel like it's a stretch to say she did not know how to articulate the gospel. And that was a big, big concern. And this is the innovative strategist for the world. So this ties into our text today. And it's Jonah chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. And Jonah 3, 7 to 10 is the fitting response to any missionary strategist who's trying to fix the world's problems without addressing 
the fundamental problem of sin in the human heart. Our text reveals a kind of societal transformation that most missionaries could only dream of in an academic conference type of setting. But what we see when we look into the missionary outreach strategy of Jonah in that big metropolis center of Nineveh, we see a big revival that's about to take place. And we can ask ourselves, what kind of strategy did Jonah employ? How did he come up with this broad sweeping change that we'll read about by the time we get to verse 10? After all, it was a socio-political change. It was transformation of society on every level. The Assyrian kingdom would never be the same in that generation. Well, I'd like to see missionary theorists from Pasadena or from Kenya or wherever, or even here, ask that question of the text. What is the strategy that God sanctions for societal transformation? And this is a passage that helps us consider the simple countercultural message of the gospel by which God does the work of transformation. So let's jump in. Jonah chapter 3 from 7 to 10. And he, the king of Nineveh, cried out and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, animal, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat and do not let them drink water. But both man and animal must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God with their strength, that each may turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn away from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. So God relented concerning the evil with which he had, which he had spoken he would bring upon them. And he did not bring it upon them. That is the word of the Lord in this passage of Jonah chapter 3. Well, the passage reflects the divine strategy for societal transformation. And there's two ways that that happens. And what we'll do is we'll show the outline up here. And we've entitled this Radical Repenting and Radical Relenting. And so you see in this outline, Radical Repenting in verses 7, 8, 9 in the first part of 10. And that's broken up between the king and his nobles with royal repenting in verses 7 and 8. And then you see resilient repenting in verse 9, which I'll explain. And this, of course, wraps up with the hope of the rest of verse 10, the radical relenting of Yahweh. So our passage begins with radical repenting. And this is the display of the repentance that we see in the king of Nineveh. And you don't have societal transformation without spiritual conversion. And you don't have transformation without spiritual conversion one individual soul at a time. And in Nineveh, it starts at the top. From what we know of the transformation in society as the message is already rippling through and transforming lives... The passage keys in to the king of Nineveh, which we saw last week with Joe. And this is the conversion of the king. And it's an amazing, amazing thing to behold. There is no part of the king's life that isn't drastically affected by Jonah's message. And by all accounts, this kind of belief is absolutely miraculous. Now, the first thing that we could say about the king's conversion is that in the terms of the passage here, verse 7, he cried out in conviction over his sin. The term for crying out 
refers to this audible, even noisy cry of someone who is praying with great emotion. You've been there. You have done that. We've seen this term cry out or even call out earlier in the chapter in verses 2 and verse 4 in chapter 3. But this is a different verb. And uh, this is a type of crying out that is not that type which is to proclaim. Here, we're looking at a message that is called out, cried out, proclaimed. And the weight of this proclaimed message now results in the king crying out with repentance. And as he cries out, then he will cry out his own weighty message. And so verses 7 to 8 record the message of this king who cries out. The king starts out by saying that he and his governmental leaders, his cabinet, have made a decree that will be effective immediately in all the land. Now, you're talking a land that's far and wide, like we talked about geographically, that would span our valleys here and would encompass about territory that would comfortably house 600,000 people thereabouts. So you're looking at far and wide an immediate decree that's going to affect every square inch of his land. And everybody is subject to the rules of this decree. And they're going to be enforced by his royal cabinet, his nobles, as it says. The term here for nobles is a great term because it actually means the great ones. The great ones. And you think about Nineveh being a great city. We've already gotten that in Chapter 1, verse 2, the idea then of this great city, you're seeing that it would be a three days walk to cross it, and it's filled with these great ones, these great ones that know the territory, that are going to scope out everywhere that they can apply this decree of the king in a great way. Love that the term great shows up throughout chapter 1. It's not just the city. Think about it. It's the great wind. It's the great storm in verse 4, and it's a great fish in verse 17. Greatness is a big concept that is part of the deliverance that God wants to bring in each of these different ways that are shown throughout the text. And here in verse 7 of our chapter, the great ones then are the ones who will cry out with their great voice, and they will call the people of this great city from the greatest all the way to the least to repent from sin like they have done like their king has done and their king has now commanded. Can you imagine? I mean, that's really miraculous. Can you picture anywhere that this could even remotely happen, let alone be a commercial spot on TV that lasts 30 seconds of anybody testifying to a repentant heart, let alone a decree in all the land coming down from the king and all of his governors. So in every district, in every commercial area, Every tract of homes, every countryside, there will be an official with the jurisdiction to oversee repentance to the one true God. Just amazing. Just absolutely breathtaking. Everyone everywhere must repent of their sin to Israel's God. There's, this is not just an executive decree that might last a day. It's, it's not just fueled by some kind of fleeting hope, doesn't just flit in and flit out. It's a decree that can't fail because it's set up with all the power of the kingdom to enforce it. Now, the decree itself, it starts with some prohibitions, a list of things not to do. 
and then it's going to go into positive commands of things to do. So let's take a look right here in our verse. The list of prohibitions starts with a, a repeating emphasis, and you can feel this here. It feels a little belabored, but it's very intentional. It says, do not let anyone taste, do not let anyone eat, and do not let anyone drink. First, no man or animal or herd or flock, as it says in the passage, should taste a thing. Now, that's about as extreme a demand as anybody could make, uh, whether a king or a handmaiden. The king is effectually decreeing that no living thing in all of his kingdom, whether a person or any animal that a person owns, should even eat one morsel of food off the table or off the floor. That's called fasting, right? And that's a very obvious way to show sorrow over sin, Think about the worst kind of despairing grief that one might have. Uh, Fasting is just kind of implicit in that. The stomach closes. Some of us will just eat whatever we find. That's our dealing with grief. But there is a sense, that's me. My my wife senses the stomach just totally closes and there's going to be no eating. Just because physically where there is sorrow, where there is strong emotion, then it is as if a fast is happening. But now it is proclaimed as a fast. A fast that is a very obvious way to show sorrow over sin. Now think about these people. If there were sorrow for sin... It's sorrow over a lifetime of sin, a lifetime of grieving God with vicious, terrible, terroristic acts against their neighbors. Fathers who would betray their children, would not love their wives, any type of immorality, fair game in a society like that. They are evil and they are enemies of God enemies of righteousness in every possible sense. These are the Assyrians to the north, and then the Babylonians to the south would be the same. This is ancient Near East culture. So for the king to reflect on his sin, to repent, and to be grieved, and to call his people to that, he knows that a fast is really what, it, what ought to accompany this kind of grief. And frankly, a lifetime of sin, you would think it would be a fast that would never end. Now, we don't know how long that lasts, but we know that the king and his cabinet have decreed it. There will be no eating, not even tasting a crumb off the counter. So uh, it says that even the animals shouldn't taste a thing or eat either. But what do animals have to do with man's sin? Uh, this is the one of those perplexing, it seems like it's perhaps one of those difficult passages to interpret. Because after all, animals don't even have a soul. They're the recipients of the curse in this world because of Adam's soul problem, because of Adam's sin, and a human line of sinning. Adam's to blame. So why should an an animal be forced to fast as well? And why is it said that he can't even taste a thing? Well, with the next prohibition, this prohibition of eating or drinking water, we can just add to these questions because, frankly, it seems like the, the, the king himself is going into tyrant mode. He's in full-on beast mode here. I mean, most people would agree that even if you fasted from food, you should be allowed to at least drink water. How long can you survive without drinking water? Well, we'd say three days. Now, depending on these harsh climates of a very arid, hot, desert landscape, 
could be perhaps even less. Best case scenario might be five or six days if they were just kind of under lock and key and in uh, peaceful kind of non-environmental uh, pressures, perhaps. Uh, going without eating, you could live off of your own food stores for quite a while, but to not drink liquids is a really severe thing. Uh, think about this. A person is not allowed to either eat or drink, drink water, anything else. And his beasts, his animals, domestic or in the field or whatever it might be, any animal under man's control is also not allowed to drink or eat. How long are they going to survive? It, it seems a bit ironic, right? Because Jonah comes in and what's his message? In 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. But the king, if he keeps going on this, they're going to be destroyed in three days. Did you think about that? This is a command to stop receiving sustenance entirely to the point where to get an animal to stop eating and drinking just in the normal grazing of eating and drinking, they'd have to lock them up uh, behind in, in some way that would prohibit them from doing what an animal naturally does. And in fact, that's the term that's used here, do not let them eat, is actually in the Hebrew, do not let them graze, don't let them pasture. So there's, a, there's an extreme quality, not just to what they're prohibited to do, but even to how they must do it. You must lock up your beasts. So this is a very forced decree, a very forced fast, but it really is coming from the heart. And the desire is to drive the people to a heart-level grief where the stomach would have closed off anyway. Now again... As to the animals, the question is, why so broad-sweeping? Why would they have to be involved in this? And what we would say is that, frankly, what God wants is righteousness before sustenance. What the king wants now, because he's righteous, is righteousness before sustenance. And when we talk about what he wants and why it could even be as extreme as involving animals, there's a play on words here in verse 7 that is helpful for us. Uh, It's the play on words with the term taste. See, the verb taste that's used here, do not let them taste anything, actually uh, has a noun form that we don't translate taste in this context. We translate it as decree. So in this verse, it says that he has made this decree, which actually is the noun form of the word taste. And then, don't let them taste. So what would that mean? Well, what it means is that the king is making his people carry out, even in the most extreme way, something that he deeply desires for, something he has a taste for. What he looks at as important, they must do. And that's repentance. So the king's predilections become his prerogatives. He's going to force them to do what pleases him. And when you think about a king like this, who has formerly, up until that day, been an enemy of God, this is a total reversing of desires, a total upending in every sense. We learned in the last passage uh, under Pastor Joe that the idea of... of, uh, of destroying Nineveh, according to God's prophecy, would be uh, to upend it, to flatten it, completely raise it to the ground. And now what we see is the king is saying, righteousness before sustenance. 
if we don't get righteous with God, then our animals mean nothing to us because we're going to die anyway. They're as good as gone. The economy that flows because of keeping these animals as good as gone, keep them locked up. It just doesn't matter to have another day lived in the way society has been living. Righteousness before sustenance. And so the animals, what do they have to do with this? Well, they're the possessions of the people. They're the possessions of the people. They represent the material goods of their owners. So in every way dear to the people, God needs to have his sovereign control over everything that they are and everything that they own. And so extreme measures are to remind them righteousness before sustenance. The idea of a society that flourishes through conversion, not based on its own evil structure, fulfilling its own evil desires. That's ultimately what's happening here. Repentance is too crucial a matter, too urgent a situation that they are in to be distracted by the affairs of daily life. Lock up your animals, shut down your businesses, seal up food in your pantry. Life will not go on unless we all repent in this moment. And life will not go on until we repent. So those are the king's prohibitions, the things he says not to do. What are his positive commands? Well, from the reader's point of view, the decree actually goes even more extreme. And it says in verse 8 that both man and animal must be covered with sackcloth. Well, keep in mind what we've already learned from verse 6 last week, that the king is already covered in sackcloth and ashes from the city dump, which is a visual expression and perhaps... um, somewhat more uh, than visual, of his deep contrition over sin. So if anybody understands the significance of what this decree entails, it's the king himself who made it. He's living out this example for his people to follow. Repentance is what he's all about. And so he's forcing his tastes in his decree And his tastes include not just not tasting anything, but wearing sackcloth, man and animal. Now, everybody from the noblemen down to every citizen, if they are mourning over their sin, it's going to be obvious. Sackcloth itself was usually a dark, rough garment, uh, perhaps made out of goat hair at times, something that would be ill-fitting, an obvious sign that someone was in mourning. Wearing sackcloth indicated to everybody that a person was totally devoted to grieving over their sin in this case. Right? This isn't just funeral attire. This is saying the soul is destitute. It is dead without God's intervention. And so to make an even bolder statement of somebody's grief than even the animals that they possess need to be wearing sackcloth. To see people's own possessions and their livelihood shadowed, overcome by sorrow would really help the people to have the type of sorrow that is fitting with the kind of sin that they have in front of their eyes. Every aspect of their lives is tainted by their evil deeds. And so grief over their sin now needs to penetrate every aspect of their lives. This is what may seem extreme to us, this covering even of the animals, but it is actually a beautiful way to symbolize true heart change and what's demanded of the sinner. And so this is the idea of radical repentance that we see in verses 7 and 8. 
And the idea is that what is happening in the heart then is something that we can see outwardly. What's happening inwardly is manifested outwardly. And that's really the crux of the matter for us in this passage now. And it's this, that true belief results in true and lasting change. True belief results in true and lasting change. And to get there, it takes sorrow. But a sorrow that is met with zeal. A grief that doesn't just stay there, but a grief that leads to action. And those are the positive commands that we see that the king understands. And he now decrees and he will enforce down to the man. So think about how true repentance is manifested by actions. Right? We don't, we don't uh, save ourselves through self-righteousness. Scripture doesn't advocate that. It doesn't say get into the busy work of righteous-looking deeds from an unchanged heart. But Scripture speaks against hypocrisy like that and yet affirms that sorrow is met with zeal, grief, leads to action. You can think of New Testament examples like Zacchaeus. Luke 19, he repented of his sin. And then what did he do? The grief led to actions. He returned the money that he had defrauded. He proceeded to provide hospitality for the Lord that cost him much. True repentance means that it isn't enough to just not sin. Do we understand that? We need to actually act righteously. This is true repentance. And biblical repentance is what this king of Nineveh is all about. He's laying aside sin and he's putting on righteousness. He's laying aside his sin and putting on righteousness with deeds in keeping with righteousness. Well, the Apostle Paul teaches us so much about how to repent in a biblical way. It's this combination of putting off sinful deeds and putting on righteous deeds. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10, as he rejoices about the Corinthians and themselves, they, they were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. They had this grief, the type that would close the stomach. They were made sorrowful according to the will of God. But we can combine that with what he writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, from 22 to 32. I won't read all of it. But what we see is this grief over sin comes out in this laying aside of sin and this putting on of righteousness. So in Ephesians 4, 22, he says, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside, in reference to your former conduct, the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and verse 24, to put on the new man. Lay aside the old man, put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then Paul offers some examples of putting off and putting on, laying off and taking on. He says in verse 25, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. Are you a liar? Were you a liar before Christ? Now that you're in Christ, you speak the truth says, each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. See, it's this commitment now to unity that a liar didn't have, but a repentant one will demonstrate. That's the fruit of his conversion. Verse 28 says, he who steals, were you a thief before Christ? Then steal no longer. There's the prohibition. But rather, what do you put on? He must labor, it says in verse 28, performing with his own hands what is good, 
so that he'll have something to share with the one who has need. He took from those as if they were sharing when he was in his sin and he robbed. But now he's going to create and he's going to give. You put off sin and you put on righteousness. And this is what the king understood. So many great examples come out of Ephesians 4 there. And the picture of true repentance then is this change of heart that results in a change of behavior. Where there's a heart change, there's a behavioral change. It's through conversion that there will be transformation. What is inside of a person is going to come out. Now you get to the second half of Jonah 3.8, and you see that the king is aware that his decree could actually spur outward actions that don't really come from a changed heart. They're just actions. They're just external manifestations. They're just hypocritical outward acts. And so what does he do? He commands his people to do an inward act that only a changed heart is possible of accomplishing. They are to do what? Call on God with their strength. This is something that they can't do without heart transformation, to call on God with their strength. Now, we saw it already in those pagan sailors in chapter 1. In verse 14, right in the sinking ship, they called on the one true God with all of their might, and they were saved. And that's exactly the kind of faith that this Ninevite king is calling his subjects to exercise. The king really wants them to cry out to God in a real way, a desperate way that befits their situation. So he commands them to call on God with their strength. There's nothing casual. There's nothing trite about this. There's nothing common with this kind of prayer that until today they were making to false gods. No, it's a prayer that comes from spiritual eyes that for the first time are looking at the radiant light of God. And what do they see reflected in his light? The ugliness of their sin. They see themselves as the sinners that they are when it's compared with the light of his holiness. And what do they see when they look at themselves, really? What does the ugliness of sin look like? Well, Isaiah 6.5, Isaiah says he's a ruined man, a man of unclean lips. He had a dirty mouth. You see Isaiah in Isaiah 64.6, this idea of being an unclean man whose best attempt at righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. To see yourself in the light of his eternal holiness is to see a lump of filthy rags at your best. Paul in Romans 7.24 calls himself a wretched man. He's a wretched man trapped fighting sin in a corrupted body. That's who he is in the light of God's perfect holiness. And so a sinner who sees himself by the light of the one who is true is a destitute person, is somebody with no other recourse than to just bow the knee, to repent to God. He's destroyed by the reality of this eternal separation. Occupation, animals, longevity, politics, all of this, worthless. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. And so the king has experienced this sense of spiritual reality of things. This is, this is day one for him. And with all the strength that he has, he cries out to God and cries out this decree. 
And this is what he expects, is that he would not only manifest his sorrow, but the royal court would do that, and the people would manifest their sorrow, that it would really come from within so that they cry out with all the strength that they have. Because if they do indeed, through renewed, regenerated spiritual eyes, see the beauty of the holiness of an eternal God, then they look at themselves and they see the entire opposite, and it is their worst nightmare. And so this is the idea of calling out to God with strength. But the king goes on and he's got another positive command, which is also really important for us when we think of putting off in order to put on righteousness. And the king says that everyone is to turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. That's in our verse here. And the idea there sounds like a prohibition what not to do, but instead it's a very positive command to turn from your evil way, and from the violence which is in your hands. The lifestyle and the conduct of these pagans is purely evil. They need to abandon their lifestyle of evil. The wickedness that permeates all their pleasures. Their success mentality. That that which fuels the next generation is to God an evil way. It's a course of life that then directs the feet into the feet into acts of violence the portrayal of wickedness all of this that comes out of the heart and comes out of the desires from the worldview itself now is met by hands and feet and mouths that will perpetrate on the basis of everything that's already playing out in the mind and so the evil way is marked by violence which is in their hands Think about the Ninevites. They were a vicious people. They flaunted their violence against their enemy in gory detail. The things that they did and the way they portrayed them are so heinous, we can't even speak about them here. We do in seminary classrooms because we like shock value to seminarians. But these were a proud people, and they celebrated the accomplishments of their evil And the king understood that putting off evil is to put on righteousness, which is to turn from evil. It's a 180-degree turn, complete opposite of how they lived based on who they were, their identity themselves. Now, to live as a kingdom in the sight of God, as children of God, and to bear fruit in keeping with righteousness and to be the kingdom of God in that generation for their people is a totally different path. And he wants everybody to experience that. It's a miracle, isn't it? And this is what God does. He he stops sinners dead in their tracks. He always calls people to turn the other direction. To walk in a new and holy calling. To walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 is again very helpful captures this idea that I believe the king has in mind here when he commands his people to call on God and turn from their evil lifestyle. And Isaiah writes, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. Jeremiah 17.9 gives us even more. He says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, a heart that doesn't know the truth won't walk in the truth, but a heart that is 
brought to the knowledge of the glory of God will make the 180 degree turn and will live out repentance in new life. And so this is where Jesus in Matthew 16, 24 to 25 gives us these words that by God's providence we sang about in the song this morning. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Repentance is that 180 degree turn. And it is what the king has committed himself and now his people to. It's a life set on a new course. This is a radical repentance that he's experiencing. And he wants his people to experience. So he's modeled this godly sorrow. His royal servants are ready to enforce it. And it is his full expectation that the people will join him in a heartfelt 180. Total turnaround of their lives in every detail, including how they allow their animals to graze or not graze. Now verse 9 comes in and it exposes that while the king has this high expectation... And he does want all 600,000 citizens to be um, saved by the Lord. He really isn't sure what to expect of God himself. He demands their repentance, but can he presume upon God to deliver them? This is where it would be pushing too far for him. He really has no real assurance of God's forgiveness, but he does have a sincere heart for repentance. And so this is why I've entitled for verse seven, uh, verse 9 that the king is modeling a resilient repenting. There's a resilience in his repentance here. Let's read verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn away from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Well, it is so interesting for us to see how deeply into repentance the king's decree will go. But then just to arrive at verse 9 and find him questioning whether or not all of this repentance will actually result in the staying of God's wrath. That's the question is about deliverance. The king isn't doubting the existence of God. He isn't even doubting the truth of Jonah's message and what he must do to fulfill it. He simply has no reason to be sure that the God of Israel will be compassionate to a group of formerly evil, up until that moment, Gentiles. Jonah's prophesied in verse 4, back in verse 4, that God is going to raise Nineveh to the ground, right? Upend it, destroy it. So legitimate recourse against that, this is not the king's purview. He doesn't know how to look at Um, a spiritual reality differently than what is communicated to him by the word of the Lord. Will God consider their repentance? Will he forego their destruction? The king simply doesn't know. But he has a sense of faith to them in that generation. If all they get is 40 days left, then they will be the most righteous 40 days that they get. Can you sense that kind of resilience? We will repent anyway because it is right. Because God deserves it. Because we now see ourselves in the light of his glory and we will not live this way anymore. They're resilient in their repenting. And they're not trying to 
act like the pagans that they would have acted like yesterday. And what would that be? Well, okay, we hear this terrible news, so let's go, what do we do? Cut ourselves? Is it bloodletting that's going to help in this? Is it, is it chicken blood in the field that's going to appease the local deities? What's it going to take through our medicine men and all of our spiritual animistic practices to appease this God? Now he's thinking like a biblical believer, one whose repentance is marked by this pure motivation to just serve the Lord, not knowing what's going to become of his life. But he does say that perhaps God could, as it says here, turn and relent and turn away from his burning anger. That's resilience, though. His motives are pure, but he does operate from hope. This is a good thing that he sees the character of God as somebody who could turn and relent from doing evil back eye for an eye with those who have done evil all of their days. These are pure motives and they're very hopeful thoughts. The thing that we need to keep in mind though as when we repent is how to be biblical in our repentance. We need to be so careful that we don't act like the pagan Ninevites before they repented, which is, I find myself in sin. Maybe I can appease God to forgive me. Believers do this, unfortunately. We all do when we sin. We, we lose sight of the truth. We are, we are dimmed in our biblical understanding. Our wisdom somehow is lacking. The flesh starts to take over. And what do we do? Maybe we can appease God. Maybe we can do something to get him to relent. Maybe, maybe there's more prayers I can make, more time in the word, more uh, godly acts of righteousness and service to the church that are going to get him to forestall destroying me. And unfortunately, believers can fall into this. And part of the antidote to that is similarly to what Paul would say in Acts 17, 24 and 25 to a bunch of other pagans that are in Athens. And he says that God is independent of you. God does not need to save you. And God isn't waiting around for you to do some perfect sacrifice to him so that he will save you. God is independent. And so in Acts 17, 24 and 25, Paul says, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he served by any hands, listen to this, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, everything comes from him. What he wants is for you to not only not not presume upon him, but also to trust him and to have the kind of hope that the Ninevite king has with his newfound faith. God is compassionate to sinners. The king knows it. We know it. And the idea is that if he wants to give us that compassion, he will, and it'll be a great and wonderful thing. And the good news is he does. He's provided his compassion to unworthy sinners, those pagan idolaters, like the Ninevites, starting with the king, and people like us. The reality, though, is this presumption 
that he's just going to overlook our sin. He's going to just kind of skirt it under the rug, or maybe I can do something to atone for it above and beyond the once for all sacrifice of Christ really betrays the thoughts here in verse nine, because what does the king know is true? He recognizes what they deserve because of their evil. He says that God has burning anger, burning anger against them in their evil and that they ought to what? They ought to perish. Death should be what they get. And so surviving their sin would be a total act of mercy. Completely, God rerouting them from what they're headed for, which is hot burning destruction. And God would be justified for slaying them in their evil. God is always vindicated even when sending people to hell is vindicated as the just God. So verse 9 is helpful for recognizing that there, there should be no presumption among a sinner of what God would do because God owes us nothing. But the reality comes that, that God up in his holy mountain is looking and he sees. And he sees repentant sinners and he has regard for them. This is what's so amazing about a, a God who is independent of his creation is that he's even looking let alone seeking whom he can save. And this is the idea that we see in verse 10, that God saw their work of repentance. You see that right there at the top of verse 10. He saw that they turned from their evil works. I thought it would be helpful to show a couple of slides to you of uh, of the Pergamon Museum that I was able to go to a couple weeks ago when I was in Berlin. We took a field trip with all the academic leaders of our European schools. And in this first slide, you can just see the kind of pride that just permeates the, uh, the world of Babylon and Assyria. These, these uh, expressions of self-declared deity uh, and warfare, and all of this to herald them for their great and disastrous sins. Pretty much every artifact that was in the Pergamon Museum celebrates the pride of these kingdoms that no longer exist, that have been raised to the ground. But let me show you the second slide here. I was surprised to run across this Assyrian water basin. Uh, It's a water basin used for ritual cleansing, and it dates back to Assyria in, uh, in a town near Nineveh around the time of Jonah. And what's interesting about this is the relief around the base depicts uh, the beliefs of the people that water had magical properties. I'm not sure how well you can see it, but you, you, have, some, uh, you have some streams flowing around the costumes as they portray the type of uh, uh, obeisance and ritualistic ceremonies to their fish god, Dagon. Well, there's a lot of fishiness about all of this, I guess you could say. Uh, What you have in this religious system is just the height of man worshiping creation and and having no other possibility of a view higher than that. And at the same time, you have Yahweh in heaven that's looking to save these Ninevites that are doing this base form of abominable practices. 
And what is this God from heaven going to do? He's going to save them. He's going to transform them. And then through the decree of the king, guess what that priest in the fish costume is going to do? He's going to take it off. And he's going to put on sackcloth. And he's never going to put on that fish costume again. You see, God looked and he caused them to repent. And then they did repent. So the question is left hanging, will God deliver them now that they're repentant? And the answer is categorically yes. We get that in the rest of the story. But we also get it from Jesus, and you're familiar with this passage now. We've talked about it a few times. Matthew 12, 41. Jesus contrasts the repentance of the Ninevites with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And what does he do? He says that the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, condemning the Pharisees, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You see, the king, his noble servants, his citizens, they manifest this radical repentance from the heart, and that is purely because as God caused them to repent, he saw their works and gave them opportunity to live out their repentance long past 40 days. And verse 10, as we go back to the outline here, is not meant to be an afterthought. As we look back on the outline here, we'll see that in verse 10, God saw and God relented. God looks at the works that he has singularly created supernaturally and sovereignly in his people, this new pagan people that worship him, and then God radically relents. So verse 10 is really helpful. Jason, why don't we put up the the outline slide next? And it shows us that God radically relents. Now, this is the concluding point here. And what's really radical about the relenting of God, the the removing of his, uh, his, what he has foretold as the destruction of Nineveh in 40 days, is that he even looked down, even saw, and in his independence still interacts and loves these people. This is undeserved favor through and through. What's also radical about his relenting is that he actually answered the king's prayer request. He's listening to a pagan. He's listening to someone who, up until that moment, was his enemy. And so, in verse 10, we have the, the reality that, that God could have sent all of his calamitous disaster and raised Nineveh to the ground. And that would have certainly matched and surpassed the evil that they had ever done. He would have destroyed them. But it's a radical relenting because it says at the end, he did not bring it upon them. Romans 5.20 is helpful here. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Sin was so mounted up in Nineveh, but God's grace abounded all the more. He didn't bring his swift judgment. He promised that he could do it, and he chose not to. 
not because they had some ritualistic pagan prayer that convinced him otherwise. He's independent. But he chose to pour out his love and deliver them, even physically. See, they lived in their own times of ignorance. Their times of, of betraying God and not even knowing it. I mean, they dressed up like fish. Acts 17.30, again, is a, is a great reference. Paul, when he's speaking to the pagans, similarly, but of different worldviews, different approaches to, to idolatrous practices. In Acts 17.30, Paul says that, that God has overlooked the times of ignorance in which those sinners lived for their wicked pleasures. God isn't a softy when it comes to sin, He demands repentance or he will give the retribution. This is clear. But this is what he says in Acts 17.30 that's helpful for us to think about when we think about non-believers even today. He overlooks the time of ignorance and God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, his son Jesus Christ having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Judgment comes to those that are now made aware of their sin. How did the Ninevites get out of that judgment? God caused them to repent, and then he honored that, and he relented. That's a radical relenting. And this really is the prayer for those non-believers that live in their own time of ignorance now, not even realizing that their greatest religiosity is no better than a fish costume. Those that live in the pride of life, and they, they boast at their wickedness, they fulfill their pleasures, and they deny the glory of God. What we pray is that God will radically relent from their destruction. And that's a grace that is promised through Jesus Christ. Those who with new eyes see the light of the glory of God, see their wickedness, are not left in a state of destitute, desperate grief. God does not keep those animals even locked up forever. He does not destroy those who repent. It takes a radical repenting. But what's so incredible is what that repentant person gets is the radical relenting of the God Most High. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which teaches us about the heights of your mercy in the face of the depths of our sin. We ask that you would pour out deliverance to those who, perhaps even in this room, are being now made aware that their sin is is an eternal offense to you with eternal punishment. And rather than destroy them, Lord, would you deliver them? Would you take them from their current state of sin and would you rescue them? We thank you for this clear example of your compassion. We thank you for how it shows us that you are not... uh, only dedicated to Israel, but you're dedicated to those who will call upon you, having heard the message of the gospel. 
And Lord, that stands today. Lord, our sin is so grievous to you. Would you cause us, even believers, to be continually grieved over the sins that we continue to commit that are not in keeping with our righteous nature in Christ? And would you cause then that godly sorrow to be met with godly action? Would you fuel that as well? And by your grace, then, we can serve you, not like the pagans who continue to try and win your favor, but those that through thankful hearts can live out your grace in their lives. Lord, there's so much more for us to understand about repentance. We thank you that we have a clear understanding of it right from the pagan king of Nineveh. And Lord, we long for the day that we will be with you and all the redeemed, those who, even from Nineveh, praised your name. And Lord, we long to be with perhaps 600,000 Ninevites in that generation one day in heaven to recount these stories from their perspectives. Just thank you for the promise of your deliverance and ask that that would be a reality for new people today and a continual reality for us to live in consistently through the once-for-all sacrifice of your Son by which you look on us and you answer our prayers. It's through your Son that we pray. Amen.